Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain in the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You might remember Furbies. It was the must-have toy of 1998, and Vernon Hills, Illinois-based Tiger Electronics, which was around that time bought out by Hasbro, sold about 40 million of these Furbies in three years. There have been a couple attempts of a comeback for the Furby. The last happened around 2016 with the Furby Connect, but the wave of popularity has gone since to low tide. And yes, this is an original 1998 tag still on it, pristine white Furby. Can you believe it? You may remember that Furbies were banned by a couple of intelligence agencies that thought the these toys had within them some sort of artificial intelligence or a surreptitious recording device. Their odd furbish language was supposed to evolve and change over time so that eventually, the marketing went, they would learn to speak something that more resembled English. Workplaces like the National Security Agency wouldn't let employees keep furbies at their desks for fear of spreading state secrets. But there was one more thing that they made these popular little monsters interesting. If you would place Furbies together in a room, they would eventually begin to talk to one another. That wasn't widely advertised, so when a bunch of kids started bringing their Furbies to school when they came back in the spring of 1999, teachers started to freak out as these inanimate objects would seem to come to life and have a full-on conversation in some sort of devil language where they were likely plotting planetary extinction in the middle of a grade school social studies class, and nobody really knew why or how. It turns out that Furbies had this little infrared port between their eyes, which was their cue that another Furby or several happened to be present in the area with them, but it also prompted them to communicate with one another through their proprietary language. They sent out a signal to another Furby that was in the room, and they could sense each, other's way, their, sense each other's presence in ways that weren't visible but became evident. And I like to think of Christians a bit as Furbies of faith. There's something unique that connects Christ followers on a deeper spiritual level. There's something invisible but evident that joins people whose lives are surrendered to Jesus. And though we don't always understand the connection at first, over time we grow to understand the language of our spiritual connection more 
and more. And here's where it starts, our first lesson this morning. Christ has created a path to reconciling with God and one another. Christ has created a path to reconciling with God and one another. The author of Hebrews writes, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. If you've ever started off a creative discussion or board meeting with people who don't have a lot of background with one another, or there's a chance you've participated in something called an icebreaker. These are maybe get-to-know-you games like Two Truths and a Lie or divergent thinking exercises like having your team work to build whatever the, free, the tallest freestanding structure is you can make with an envelope full of provided materials. These are relatively low-risk activities that help people get accustomed to interacting more comfortably, warming up some creative processes and drawing inferences about applications from whatever it is that you've been asked as a group to do. It's called breaking the ice after the ice-breaking ships that would travel in freezing waters to forge paths that have never been forged through these icy regions before. And it's a process designed to make a pathway, or several pathways, since these icebreaker activities are designed to help remove barriers between people and open up channels of thinking and acting that may not have been considered before. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus did more than break the ice but he did create new pathways for us. More to the point, Jesus tore the curtain. In the Jerusalem temple at the time of Jesus, there were increasingly exclusive areas of access. Any properly cleansed male Levite, who was a descendant of the priestly Hebrew tribe of Levi, could access the court of priests, and beyond the court of priests was the holy place that hosted things like the table of bread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. These were precious artifacts in Hebrew worship and can only be accessed by priests who were tending to the ceremonial bread, candles, or incense. And beyond that was the inner sanctum, the holiest of holies. This is where in Solomon's temple, in Herod's temple, the Hebrew people would keep the Ark of the Covenant. In the time of Jesus, at the time of Herod's temple, the Ark had been long missing and its whereabouts unknown. Indiana Jones had as much of an idea as anyone. One select priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, would enter into that inner sanctum, the most holy place, to offer the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat of God to acknowledge and atone for, which means to make right, the priest's own sins and the sins of the people. No one else was allowed into the place of God's presence for fear of death or curse. Those who ministered within the inner sanctum were reported to have entered in with a rope tied around them so that if something happened, they could at least be pulled out of that space for whatever good that would do. <clears throat> that part of the temple was separated from the holy place, that outer part, by a roughly four-inch thick curtain of fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim embroidered in. It functioned as a, a big divine keep-out or caution sign to let the Hebrew people know not to take the presence of the God of Israel lightly. 
But when Jesus was crucified, we read in Matthew 27, at that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart. This curtain was torn from top to bottom, this four-inch thick curtain that was 60 feet tall. Nobody was on a ladder or scaffold up there. Nobody got out their Fiskar sewing scissors and started seam ripping. The only power strong enough to break that barrier was God, and from heaven downward demolished that barrier that divided humans from the direct and immediate presence of God. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that which would keep us distant from our God was removed if we choose to open ourselves to God's presence. Jesus broke the ice and tore the curtain. He created a pathway and then some. Jesus made a way for people to unite with our God in a new and powerful way. And if we can have that kind of relationship with a God whose holiness, righteousness, and goodness is immeasurably greater than our own, then Jesus most certainly made a pathway for redeemed and healing humanity to have a new and improved relationship with one another as well. Spend a moment with that. God is so unlike us. Thoughts higher than our thoughts, ways greater than our ways, not shifting or slumbering like so many created things. And if the sacrifice of Jesus was powerful enough to bridge that gap between the divine and a sin-sick creation, then that sacrifice is powerful enough to bridge the gap between a wounded and wandering humanity as well. The author of Hebrews offers us one really good way that Jesus changed the nature of our relationships, our human relationships. Namely, we don't have to rely on other people to provide what God alone can provide. We don't have to rely on other human beings for our validation. Jesus and his sacrifice have declared that you are eternally precious. You don't have to convince other people that your actions are right and justifiable. We confess all who are before the Lord, all of who we are before the Lord, and the sacrifice of Jesus washes us clean and frees our conscience. We don't have to worry if we're enough. When Christ is in us, our God proves to be more than enough and steadfast, and trustworthy. When we don't have to worry about convincing ourselves and others that we're flawless and polished, we can spend more time being caring and authentic. When we're not putting on the front to prove ourselves to others, we can open our hearts to experience love and vulnerability because we know Christ will take care of us. Those things that break us down and exhaust us because we have to play-act our perfection are broken like thin ice by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that changes the nature of relationships among believers. Our second lesson this morning is this. Our relationships as disciples will be different because of our spiritual bond and shared purpose. Our relationships as disciples will be different because of our spiritual bond and shared purpose. This author of Hebrews goes on, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. This coming week, my family will once again engage in our annual tradition of watching the movie Elf as part of our kickoff to the Christmas season. We've done it for so many years at this point that we can basically recite the movie from memory. Out of all the traditions that the pandemic has thrown into the shredder, this one still holds up with relatively little difficulty. 
One of my favorite scenes has Buddy, a human raised by elves, telling his father's secretary, Deb, you have such a pretty face, you should be on a Christmas card. And Deb blushes and responds, oh, Buddy, you just made my day. Buddy didn't have any hint of objectification or he wasn't offering empty flattery. It was just a sincere kindness. And it was a simple fictional exchange, but it warms my heart every time I see it. Buddy is an encourager. Unless you're a South Pole elf or sitting on a beef and cheese scented throne of lies, you're likely to walk away from an encounter with Buddy feeling encouraged. His version of encouragement might come across as a little saccharine for many of us, but the point remains. Who walks away from an encounter with you feeling encouraged? Who feels seen and appreciated? Who believes they could be on a Christmas card because you named a unique and special part of who they are? I've got people who are like that in my life. They're not shining Pollyanna sunshine on me in a way that seems insincere. They're making a point to help me feel seen and appreciated and encouraged. You know these people. They saw the unnoticed particulars of a job you clearly put some serious effort into, and they just mention how they recognized your attention to detail. They'll hear your presentation, and bypassing all of your self-conscious second-guessing about your performance, they'll recite back to you your main point and tell you why it's personally compelling. It's the person who figures out your favorite candy or restaurant, and when they know you've been having a tough day, they'll figure out a way to make sure that a gift card or a treat ends up on your desk. It's the people who give you grace when an all-too-human mistake happens and you, they tell you about what they see in your character that gives good reason to anticipate you'll dust yourself off and do better next time. And they're the ones who will give you an opportunity for a next time. Many of us have known some discouragers in the church. They're quick to register their complaints and qualms whenever something doesn't happen to their satisfaction. Maybe they know the Bible better than you, and perhaps they always will, but they're especially familiar with the parts that are pointing out areas of struggle and hurt in your life. You walk away from the encounters with these people feeling beat down, chewed up, and burned out. Their lives are full of disappointment, and they're downright generous as they invite your company into their misery. I have compassion for these people because they seem to miss out on the joy that Christ brings to even the most difficult of circumstances, but I cannot internalize their sorrow and I can't take responsibility for it. You also know when you've been in the presence of an encourager in the faith because they see Christ in you in ways that maybe you haven't seen for yourself. You'll maybe learn about a spiritual gift that someone notices in you because you're bearing fruit for the kingdom and you never thought such a thing was possible. When you encounter a Christian encourager, you'll find yourself becoming more curious about God's word and feeling equipped to dig deeper. You'll find yourself willing to risk more in mission because an encourager doesn't just build you up, but builds up your sense of who God is as we trust more in the God we serve. Our Christian encouragers help us to speak more openly about the God in whom we trust because it's not a matter of pride or arrogance, but a matter of love and hope. In short, our courage increases when we've attended to these relationships with one another during our time of praise. I hope to provide encouragement as I preach and teach, but I'm also well aware that the sermon is not the only lesson that God has in store for us when we connect through worship. If we're only mindful of them, we might find the good news in a streaming service comment section or in times that feel more typical to us, maybe we'll experience courage-building connection in a neighboring pew. Our third lesson is this. 
Friends in faith yearn to know, how is it with your soul? Friends in faith yearn to know, how is it with your soul? And let us not neglect our meeting together, together, the writer of Hebrews says, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Deepening these relationships as a congregation is the heart of who we are as a Methodist people. John Wesley called on godly-minded people to set aside the talk of sports and weather as they gathered to ask each other in grace and confidence, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? And get this, people would answer honestly. They wouldn't just answer fine or can't complain or okay. They would answer honestly because they recognized that the state of their eternal soul was something that was worth tending. It was worth their vulnerability. It was worth the risk. It demanded an openness. Why? Well, especially in these early Methodist band meetings, there are two reasons. One was the Holy Spirit and the other was accountability. Accountability went like this. You talk about what people confess in the confidence of these meetings and you don't come back to these meetings. It's that simple. If you're not trustworthy, you don't receive trust. That was how it worked. If you wanted the benefit of soul care, you had to handle one another's souls carefully. Gossips and exaggerators either reminded, remedied their sinful talk or their invitation to participate was revoked. Grace did not, in that circumstance, mean anything goes. It's the power that God makes it's the power that makes the reconciling and transformational work of God go. And our predecessors took that rather seriously. But the other piece, the Holy Spirit part of this, is a little bit tougher to nail down. This word we throw around, fellowship, it's not just about potlucks. It's really not. The term fellowship, which is koinonia in the Greek, is a spirit-level relationship where the spark of God that lives in me recognizes the spark of God that lives in you and reaches out in love and concern for your wholeness and well-being. True fellowship is caring for one another on a spiritual level. Can it be done over food? Absolutely. And it certainly has been. Can you have a full-on potluck and miss the point of Christian fellowship altogether? You bet your 20-piece bucket of Colonel Sanders extra crispy you can. Plenty of churches have eating clubs that they call fellowship, but they tend to get people closer to a prescription to Lipitor than to heaven when it's all said and done. We see a spiritual fellowship in the early church. No matter what things have been dividing them, the Spirit of God had the power to demolish the dividing walls and radically unite people. In Acts chapter 2, when so many people came into faith together, the believers met together constantly, sharing everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple every day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. Each day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. People are simultaneously drawn to and repelled by that level of sharing. The desire to be known and the desire to be utterly protected of our image may work against each other many times in our lives. In my chaplaincy internship, I learned this gesture. It's a hand blocking and a hand beckoning at the same time. It's the stay away, come close signal. 
All of us have these protective barriers that we've built up over time to guard our hearts and to guard how we're perceived. But so many of us are weary of wearing proverbial masks, and so we're desperately wanting someone to know our stuff and tell us that we are not without hope, that even at our worst, we're not without love. And we don't jump into that quickly or easily. Those relationships are built on trust, which means we sow seeds that build trust. We gradually test the waters of relationships to make sure that we won't be hurt or betrayed. Other humans are always going to fall short and disappoint us in ways that God never will, but even when we accept mistakes and failings as a given, we still have a desire to know that people won't be cruel or unkind to us. Some of us have histories that replay in our minds, telling us trust is hard to earn but very easy to lose. So we're called to be a trustworthy people. Because our fellowship demands that people can know that our vulnerability will be handled in a way that upholds the dignity and confidence of each person. As a church, we want to know that a community of love will care for us in our time of need, and so we likewise care for others. As Christ's followers, who are created to be formed more and more into the image of Jesus, we need to know that these folks in the family of faith aren't just good-time brunch buddies but lay down their lives for us companions, journeying together on this same road of redemption. I believe God still draws people to groups like that. That level of care stands out in a world filled with superficiality and insincerity. It's the kind of relationship we'll discover if our hearts are open, and we become more and more open to these relationships as we worship. Would you pray with me? Gracious, loving God, we are so grateful for the ways that you have provided other companions on this journey to help us tend our souls and that we can help to tend theirs. It's a, it's a risky thing when we invite spiritual connection into our friendships, when we bother to ask somebody, how is it with your soul? God, we also know that you didn't give us a spirit of fear or timidity. You've given us a spirit of power and love, self-discipline, a spirit that cries out to you as our Heavenly Father and finds in that strength and comfort. And so, help us to risk. Help us to open ourselves up to that spiritual bond, keeping our minds open as we praise, keeping our hearts tender, even though so many of our circumstances would cause us to shut down. But Lord, this is our calling, to love and care for one another as your family and faith, and to draw more and more people into that beautiful bond. We thank you for the ways that you've invited us. Let it not stop with us, Lord, but continue to grow in your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.